Welcome to Marketing Thought Leadership, the podcast that offers insightful discussions on thought-provoking marketing topics. Here's the host of our show, marketing consultant, speaker, author, and educator, and the president of L2M Associates, Linda Popke. Welcome, this is Linda Popke. Welcome to Marketing Thought Leadership. Today we're here with million-dollar consultant Alan Weiss, who is one of those rare people who can say he's a consultant, a speaker, and an author, and really mean it. His consulting firm, Summit Consulting, has attracted such clients as Merck, Hewlett-Packard, GE, Mercedes-Benz, State Street Corporation, Times Mirror Group, the Federal Reserve, the New York Times Corporation, and over 500 other leading organizations. Alan is quite a prolific author. His publishing includes over 500 articles and 27 books, including his bestseller, Million Dollar Consulting, and his latest book, The Global Consultants. Not only are his books on the curriculum at leading business schools, but they've been translated into German, Italian, Arabic, Spanish, Russian, Korean, and Chinese. Alan is the winner of numerous awards, and he's been called one of the most highly regarded independent consultants in America. So I'd like to welcome Alan Weiss to our show. Thank you. I can listen to you forever. (laughs) Terrific. Well, thank you for joining us. Our topic today is Marketing in the New Reality how consultants can be successful in today's environment. And as we're sitting here watching the economy in turmoil, it's hard to even think about anything but the economy to start with. Um, The stock market's in free fall. We see people losing their jobs, foreclosures, layoffs, all that kind of thing. And yet I've heard you say, Alan, that you had your best year ever in 2008 and that 2009 might even be better. So tell us, what's your secret? That's true. I had my best January ever in 2009. Excuse me, I don't know what my secret is. Uh, I think that I constantly look for opportunities, and I think all good people do. And right now, in this economy, in fact, uh, there's a lot of money. It's on the sidelines. This is a perceptual problem we're having today. But if you think about it, there's a lot of money waiting to enter. Uh, There are a lot of organizations doing well, a lot of industries doing well. And in the United States, at least, I mean, I understand some of you listeners might be from outside the States, but in the United States, at the very least, it's still a $14 trillion or thereabouts economy. And there's just a, a plethora of opportunity if one but knows where to look for it. And that means you've got to be diversified and flexible and opportunistic. Okay, so is this a good time to be a consultant, a bad time to be a consultant? What do you think? It's a great time to be a consultant. I mean, publishers are approaching me and asking me to, buy, to write still more books on consulting. Uh, ergo, you know, the global consultant you just referenced, the third edition of getting started in consulting just came out. Uh, I got the advanced copies yesterday. It'll be out in a month. Uh, the second edition of Value-Based Fees came out two months ago. And so publishers who are notoriously miserly and notoriously cheap are looking to publish books on the subject. That tells you a lot. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's great. But we see a lot of people who may have just left the corporate world and say, gee, now I'm a consultant. And, and I think a lot of these folks are, are not sure what it takes to be to really be successful in consulting. You've always said that consultants are really in the marketing business. So tell us what you mean by that. Well, no matter how good a consultant you are at the content in which you deal, uh, this is the marketing business and that you have to attract customers. You have to attract clients. And no matter how good you are, if no one knows you're there, you're not going to do business. And so there are a lot of consultants who are superb and starving because they can't market. There are some consultants who are mediocre but doing pretty well because they can. And then there are those consultants who are superb at what they do and superb marketers, and they're making a fortune. So unless you understand, and this applies, Linda, to an architect or an interior designer, or for that matter today, even a dentist and a doctor. You know, my doctor 
shares an office, and in one of the other offices, uh, a doctor has a sign up that says, referrals are always welcome. Everybody's looking for business today. The fact of the matter is you need to be able to attract people to you. You need to be able to show them what your value is and to attract people to you. That applies in all times, but in bad times, uh, it's more salient than ever. And you talk about marketing gravity. Can you, can you kind of explain for some of the folks who aren't familiar with marketing gravity what you mean by that? Sure. There are two ways to get business. Uh, one is you reach out, which means you knock on doors and you tell people how good you are, which, which is noble work. I mean, it's the, historically, it's the door-to-door salesman. Uh, my father uh, tried to support our family, selling full of brushes and things, uh, encyclopedias, door-to-door. And then there's the ability to bring people to you because they, they hear of you and they want to be with you and they want to access your, your knowledge and your expertise. And uh, what I've maintained throughout my, my work and my books and my coaching and everything else is that if you can attract people to you, which is what I've, I've trademarked as marketing gravity, then there is no cost of acquisition because they're coming to you and you don't have to reach out. And secondly, fees are academic. See, there's a big difference between uh, anyone knocking on a door and saying, I'd like you to use me, here's how good I am, and somebody coming to you and saying, I've heard you're good, how do we work together? And although it seems almost counterintuitive, it's worth the extra time and money to get in the latter position. That makes sense. That makes sense, sure. So, so how has marketing gravity or, or the whole process of marketing yourself as a consultant changed in this new world, this new economic reality? Well, I don't think it has changed. Uh, I mean, I hate to disappoint you, but I think what's happened is this. In tough times, strengths are exacerbated and weaknesses are exacerbated. And so... People who are good at something will stand out more in a tough economy. Uh, so that strength will become a, just a blinding asset. And people who are poor at something will find that what was an annoyance or a drawback has now become a fatal flaw. So if you were unable to market before, being unable to market now, where you can't just live on past success, you can't live on as much word of mouth, you can't live on the repeat business because some of your good clients have stopped using you, that becomes a fatal flaw. On the other hand, where you've been able to draw people to you because you're interviewed, because you publish, because you speak, because you have products, because you have a great website, uh, a blog, you name it, uh, that will help, st- uh, help you stand out in the crowd even more because the competition diminishes. And so in this new reality we have that is uh, you know, sort of an unprecedented economic time, uh, what we have is the ability to do things you're always good at, making you even better, uh, and the unfortunate circumstance of being poor at something making you much, much worse. Okay, well, that makes sense. That makes sense. Now, you, I know you've always been a strong advocate of value-based fees. I've had, uh, in my role as president of women in consulting, I have consultants come to me and say, should we be cutting fees in our economy? And I know the answer is no, 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 but can you tell us how you would respond to that kind of statement? Sure, because when people look at fees, they're only looking at one side of the equation, and it's the wrong side of the equation. Uh, the only thing to look at is value. The only thing, I just addressed uh, 200 uh, consultants specializes in the, uh, specializing in the financial industry in Queens, uh, Queenstown, New Zealand. I mean, this is how far and wide I am asked to go to talk about these concepts and to help people. And so I traveled halfway around the world. I did a program called Six Figures to Seven in Sydney, which I'll do in Vegas in a couple of weeks. And I did uh, this special day for a friend of mine for these 200 financial consultants in New Zealand. And what I said to them was this. Here's the, here's the very first question I asked at 9 in the morning, which I would suggest that your listeners ask themselves. If you were meeting with a staff in the morning, now I don't care if you have a staff or not. If you have a staff, fine. But if you weren't and you had a staff, just picture this. If you were meeting with your staff first thing in the morning, 
every Monday morning you had a staff meeting, what's the very first thing you'd ask them? And a lot of people said I'd ask how many clients you're seeing, how many prospects you're seeing, have you turned in your expense reports, uh, have you mastered our, fe our benefits and our features, uh, what are you doing to promote in a new market? And I told them the first thing I would ask every Monday morning is, what new value can we bring to our customers? That's the only side of the equation that you should be on. And, and the room was hushed. And by the end of that day, uh, I had converts. And so to answer your question, the focus is never on price. The focus is only on value, or you've lost control of the discussion. You don't cut prices in a tough economy. You raise value. You make your value more apparent, because it's more important than ever. I mean, let's face it. If, if three clients of yours say, look, if you cut your prices, I can stay with you, what do you tell the bank? Uh, if I can pay half my mortgage, I'll stay with you next month? That's not going to work. At least uh, we hope not <laughs> with what's going on in some of the banking business. But you're absolutely right. Yeah, so you talk about um, reinventing yourself and, and kind of creating new value. I think you've said that, is it 50% of, of the, the offerings you have today didn't exist two or three years ago? Uh, last year, when I had this record year that you alluded to in the introduction, 75% of my revenue came from things I wasn't doing three years ago. Wow. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt that that pattern continues. Now, I'll tell you something. That's not unprecedented on any scale. For example, when I was doing a lot of strategy work years ago, uh, 3M, the huge, huge, you know, multi-billion dollar company, had a company strategy, had a policy that 25% of revenues had to come from things that weren't being sold five years prior. So that kept the bench chemists, so to speak, on their toes. And the same thing with any uh, organization, whether it sells products or services or both. You have to constantly reinvent yourself. In this economy or any economy, you can't just be doing the same old, same old. I'll tell you why. Things get cheaper. Things right. get smaller. You get more competition. People get used to it. I could name you another 20 reasons why you have to continue to innovate. And the fact is you innovate best from a position of strength, not a position of weakness. So when you're doing well, start to change things. Does that mean that you, you actually stop doing things, too? Because we, we tend to think about adding new services, but you've got to balance that out. There's only so many hours in the day. You want to have some good life balance. So that means going through and getting rid of things that, that are no longer as effective or something you want to continue with as well. You're absolutely right. If you picture the old monkey bars in the schoolyards when we were kids, uh, you know, you held on to these monkey bars. The only way to traverse the monkey bars was to let go with one hand and reach out to the next bar. It was the only way you could do it. There was no right. other way. Right. And so if you don't let go, you can't reach out. And people, I mean, here's something you learn at four years old, and people don't understand as 40-year-old adults. Unless you reach out, unless you, you, unless you let go, you can't reach out. And if you want to reach out commensurately, you have to let go. And so you can't continue to do everything you were doing. You can't carry every past uh, prospect and, and uh, client. And moreover, you can't carry all this past technology and methodology just because I got you to where you are. We had a meeting of the Million Dollar Club, which I formed uh, last November. And we're having two more meetings this year. And these are people making seven figures and better in the consulting business, in one stripe of consulting or another. And to our astonishment, in our first meeting, when we grilled each other and we made, our we made each other put our business model up there so the rest could critique it because we trusted each other, we found that everybody in the room was carrying around things that at one point made them successful but now is a detriment. So we all have to let go to reach out. Something you said that I, that I found was a great metaphor is, is it's one thing to drop the baggage, but if you still have it on the train with you, you're still carrying it. So you've got to literally throw the baggage from the train. 
Right. If you drop the baggage on the train, it's still with you and it's traveling at the same speed. Yeah. What you have to do is throw it out between the cars. You might kill a cow in the countryside, but that comes with the turf. Yeah. Yeah, great metaphor. I love that. So in terms of looking at new things, there's all of this new buzz about social media, these technologies that didn't exist a few years ago, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, blogging. You know, we, we hear about all these things, and the question is how much of these, from your experience as a consultant, should consultants be really adapting and putting into their marketing mix? Well, you know, when I talked about the fact that social media is sort of a hobby and not the way to go to seriously market, I got all the cultists uh, on my blog, uh, contrarianconsulting.com, and, and they all came flying and telling me, you know, I was old-fashioned and I didn't understand, I wasn't with it. And, all this. and the thing is, when people cannot match you intellectually, they launch ad hominem attacks. And so if they can't meet your intellect, they try to attack you personally, and that's what they did. Here's the fact. I, I have a large community, as you know, and every day somebody will post on one of my forums or, or blogs or send me an email and say, uh, I used Twitter and I got this lead, or I used LinkedIn and I got this, um, this new client. I would never argue with success, ever. Here's what I'm saying, though, and people have to understand this differentiation because people aren't taking the time to listen to me. If you are in major consulting work, that is, you are consulting with organizational America or wherever you are, and you're looking for economic buyers, you are not going to find these people on Twitter and LinkedIn and so forth. Now, are there exceptions? Sure, but... If you walk out of your house and you're on the way to the supermarket and you find a $100 bill on the sidewalk and you say, oh, my God, $100, I'm going to give up my job and market this way. That is, I am going to look for work by looking for money on the sidewalk. You're going to starve in 48 hours. And so just because there's an exception doesn't mean it's the rule. So the question, Linda, is always ROI. Do you spend the preponderance of your time on Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook and all these things? You know, my son was here home on a school vacation, and he was looking at Facebook, and I said, is this something I should try, Jay, just to see what it's like? And he said, well, you know, I keep track of my old friends, and uh, I, I meet some people, but he says it's a huge time dump, even for me. The, the point is, where are you going to get the ROI? And so if you can spend 15 minutes a day on Twitter, and you can spend 30 minutes a day on LinkedIn, and you get worth out of that, that's fine. Good for you. It's another marketing tool. But if you're spending hours a day on this, instead of, and this is the key, Linda, Instead of writing a book proposal or adding to your blog or getting interviewed or reaching out to new clients or writing a newsletter or doing whatever you do that really creates marketing gravity, then you're wasting your time. So let's talk about your blog because you do have this blog, Contrarian Consulting, and I know for a while, you sort of resisted creating a blog, but now you've got this blog, and it seems to have a lot of uh, a lot of readers. What would you recommend to consultants who who don't have as strong a brand as you in terms of of creating their own blog? Well, that's a great question. The reason I resisted a blog is I found, with minimal research, because I'm basically lazy, is that there are 200 million blogs in the world. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm not sure what that means, but it's true. There are 200 million blogs all over the world, and so. You know, applying any kind of intellect in that, to that, you find that the tiniest, tiniest percentage uh, are going to be of quality. And if you look at most blogs, uh, you'll find sometimes you can't even tell who wrote them. They're ungrammatical. The ideas are stupid. Or they're there as a fraud. They're there to try to sell advertising space or they're bait and switch. They're all these dumb things. And so a minority are effective. So then I said to myself, which of the minority are effective? Well, it's the people who already have brands. You want to go hear Alan Weiss. You want to hear Seth Godin. You want to hear David Meister. You want to hear Marshall Goldsmith. You want to hear Jeff Gittimer. 
you know, that, that's, the, the, that's the group I sort of move with in terms of we each have our, our special, um, special parts of the market. So if you're a consultant and you want to start a blog, the rules would be these. First, have something absolutely outstanding to say. These blogs that just reprint other people's stuff. Now, I don't mean the thieves, because there are thieves out there who just steal stuff and print them, and they should be locked up. You know, right. there's, a, there's a guy in Australia who just prints David Meister's blog verbatim. Uh, so if David Meister said, I was speaking at Harvard the other day, this guy says, I was speaking at Harvard the other day. I mean, he's, he ought to be locked up you know, right. with, with mad dingoes or something, this guy. Um, but the people who just say, I found this on Alan Weiss's blog, I found this on Seth Godin's blog, and they print this, well, why wouldn't people go to the original? So first, have something to say that's original. Second, keep it brief. Third, use multimedia. I mean, the whole point of a blog is you can do audio, you can vid do video, you can do print. So on my blog, on contrarianconsulting.com, I have podcasts, I have video, I have print, I have uh, uh, reader commentary. And so you have mixed media on there, and people can take their pick. You have to have a, a consistent philosophy, and overall, overriding, overarching, you have to want to help people. It can't be a promotion. It can't be a billboard. You have to really want to help people. Now, I would tell you that the stronger your, bl your brand, the more probable your blog will be successful. But if you want to start a blog before a strong brand, that's fine. But use those criteria. Have something to say. Give value, and make sure it's your unique intellectual property and not just repeating somebody else's. And for the love of God, do it so that it's professional. You know, have a great guy do your blog, or a great woman do your blog. Have it so that it um, it's, uh, has a, an aesthetic to it, it's easy to navigate, and it's state-of-the-art. And if you can do those things, uh, you're going to get the right people. I, I'll say one more thing, Lynn, and I, I, I hold this true for websites and blogs and anything like that. It is not the number of hits you get, it's the quality of hits you get. If you're a consultant, you'd rather have 12 buyers reading your blog than 400,000 people who can't do a thing for you. And that's the trouble, by the way, with LinkedIn. Right, right. Yeah, so it's definitely quality, not quantity. Absolutely. Let's talk about your new book, Global Consulting, which you co-authored with Omar Khan. Can you tell us why is this a good time for consultants to be thinking globally? Well, and there's a lot of good reasons uh, in, in no particular order. The first is that we do have, indeed, what Tom Friedman called a flat earth. And so... Uh, Here's a funny thing. I was talking to a person in my mentor program this morning who lives in Canada. And they're getting killed with the current economic conditions, as is the U.S. But the funny thing is, or well, maybe not the funny thing, the sad thing is, a large part of his clients were auto clients. Mm. And guess who makes most of the cars for the U.S.? Canada. Canada, yeah. And so when people talk about buy American, right, buy American, they're buying Canadian cars to a large extent. <laughs> And even when they're buying a car that was made in Lorain, Ohio, or Flint, Michigan, or wherever, there are Brazilian components in it. There are Indian components in it. Sure. So we have to stop this nonsense. It's hard to find anything that's, that's pure, nor should we. So uh, the reason that the global consultant makes sense is immediately twofold. One is it is a global economy where people can, are uh, counting on each other for products and services that are, are uh, sympathetic, uh, that are um, uh, synergistic. But the second is that because of advanced technology, it's increasingly easy to do business globally. You don't have to physically be there. You can talk to a client by email and time shift the conversation. You can talk by phone or by Skype as long as you arrange for the uh, time differences. I have a lot of mentorees in Australia. I, you know, I just came back from New Zealand and Australia, as I mentioned. I have a lot of mentorees there because it's easy to do the time shift. Right. And so, 
technology enables you to do this as well. Now, I'll give you a third reason that applies uniquely to the United States. And uh, my, my partner here, Omar Khan, who has a, uh, has a blog, by the way, called um, The Global Consultant. I allowed him to use that, the book title for his blog. Uh, uh, Omar lives in New York. He has an apartment in Dubai, an apartment in Singapore, and God knows where else. He's Pakistani, married to an American girl. I mean, he's a true internationalist, great guy. And the fact is, though, that American expertise is valued all over the world. And so the uh, greatest American export, and Peter Drucker wrote about this extensively before his death, the greatest American export is knowledge. And if you think about it, as troubled as our primary and secondary schools are, people from all over the world come here to our universities. And we have more good universities at both the first and second and third tiers, at all, all three tiers, and at junior college level. For that. I mean, we have more access to go to junior college or college in any other country in the world. Drucker said if you counted that knowledge as an export, we'd have a positive balance of trade. Yeah. So for those kinds of reasons, it makes more sense than ever to be a global consultant. And I'll give you an insight on one other thing. Um, my, uh, I have a couple of other books coming out with co-authors, uh, one on strategic um, commitment and one on uh, the talent advantage. But the one I'm writing myself right now that I hope to come out in late, um, late this year, in 2009, is called Thrive. And it's about looking at the world by thriving and not trying to survive. And what happens with too many consultants, go back to your earlier point, is they try to eke through and survive. This is the time to try to thrive. Great. What are some of the key challenges that you think, if for someone who hasn't been operating globally but operating mainly in their home country, say the U.S., what are some of the key things they have to get over to become a global consultant? Is it really a mindset, or are there actually other things as well? You're exactly right. They have to get over the six inches between their ears. I mean, they have to say to themselves, I'm now a global consultant. In other words, the processes and the expertise I have work globally as well as they work locally, and I can do this. And so now the next question is, how do I implement that? Well, in the, in the global consultant, in the book, we talk about a whole bunch of ways to do that. For example, start using technology to reach out. I don't know about you. I'm, I'm sure it's true of you, too, but... I get emails every day from all over the world. Uh, you'll find your materials in English, which is the world's de facto language I used all over the world. However, you said at the beginning of this, my books are in nine languages. It's easy to, it's easy to get things translated if they're of quality. And so you have to see yourself as a global consultant, and then you have to start to make the adaptation, adaptations you need to work there. Let me just give you a one-minute example so I'm not so um, abstract here. I wouldn't start with countries where a different language is spoken as the native language. I would not start in um, a place like Germany or Italy or France. I would start in the UK or Canada or South Africa or Australia or Hong Kong or Singapore or places where English is quite common. Then I would start to branch out from there. I would start with companies with whom you're dealing in the U.S., which are international companies. And so if you're dealing with Hewlett-Packard or you're dealing with Merck, those companies have 50 or 60 installations overseas. Start by trying to leverage your work into them. That's how you become a global consultant. You do it one step at a time, but it's, it's quite, quite feasible these days. So, so you mentioned that I know you've published 27 books, and I think you've been the sole 30, author of most books, of them. 32 books, but who's counting? Okay. Um, you've been the sole author on most of them. Right. You've co-authored this book with Omar, and you said you have several other books with co-authors. Tell me what it's like after writing books on your own to write with a co-author. What's the challenge of being in that situation? <laughs> well, my first book ever, The Innovation Formula, which is still around, I co-authored. Two of us got together. I had never thought I'd be able to write a book. And uh, we both conceptualized this book, did everything wrong, uh, got a whole lot of offers, and, and published it with uh, a high-end subsidiary of, at the time, Harper and & Row, and it's still around. 
Uh, and that's one of those books on the um, the uh, university curriculum you talked about. Okay. Uh, and then ever since then, I only wrote alone. Um, and then uh, uh, Omar came to me and said, um, I've got this opportunity with uh, Wiley. Uh, he's written one book before for Wiley, but they want you in on it because it's unconsulting. And we agreed to a deal, and I did it. Uh, one, a couple of people, my mentor program, uh, Nancy McKay came to me and said, I want to write this book on uh, the talent advantage. And then uh, Gershon Mader and Josh Lieber came to me and they wanted to write a book on strategic commitment. Well, I have the ability to, to write well and to put things in order, and I also have great publishing um, contacts and, and agents. And so uh, I do it for a fee. And uh, I do it for a fee that uh, drives all business to them. So with, um, if somebody's interested in the talent advantage, that's what Nancy speaks on. It's her workshops. It's her consulting. All the, all the credit goes to them. Um, but I'm paid to co-write that book, and I write it. Okay. So the agreement is we both conceptualize on it, and then I write it. And it's, uh, I've found my experience is that uh, a book needs a single writer, but you can have multiple people collaborating on the concepts. And if you do that, uh, you get it done. That makes sense. I was going to ask you how you, because I've read so many books with multiple authors where it's like, okay, who's talking now? And I think that's, that's key is what you just said, that with one, one writer, you can incorporate the thoughts of multiple authors, but it has one continuous voice. Now, the one exception which worked well was the global consultant because Omar is indeed a global consultant. And we split up the 12 chapters, and you know he took six. He felt strongest on. I took six. We each wrote six, compared notes, and, and there it went. But that's a great exception to the rule. Okay, great. So let's talk about self-esteem, if, if we can, for a few minutes. You've often said the first sale is to yourself. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, when I first began coaching people, when Million Dollar Consulting came out in 92, uh, I was convinced that you know consultants had a problem because they weren't capitalized, didn't have enough money in the bank to see them through bad times, and I was completely wrong. You know, you've heard me say how stupid I was two weeks ago all the time. Right. I, I was completely wrong. And I realized that the consultant's problem as a whole was the lack of self-esteem. And I heard people in my mentor program say to me, um, why would someone listen to me? How could I possibly charge that? I don't belong in that room. And, you know, I just kept picking myself up off the floor. So the first sale uh, is to yourself means that you have to believe. Honest to God, you have value to give to people. And most consultants focus on their methodology. They focus on what they do. I, I run a focus group. I run a strategy retreat. Uh, I do needs analysis, you know, whatever it is. And, and those are all commodities, and you can buy them by the dozen. As a consultant, what you have to focus on is how you improve the client's condition. And so if you help a client get larger market share or reduce stress or form better um, uh, commercialization of products or improve profit margin or whatever it is, those are very valuable contributions. And consequently, uh, a consultant has to first appreciate for herself or for himself just how good they are. I mean, you actually have to walk right up to that arrogance line and stop a hair short of it. But if you don't blow your horn, nobody else will. Do you see that a consultant's self-esteem or their lack of self-esteem come across sometimes in the way they market themselves and the way they promote themselves to clients? Oh, absolutely. What you see, if you visit websites, I mean, I can tell you in a split second by looking at a consultant's website or collateral whether they have high self-esteem because... Consultants with high self-esteem say things like, we, we assist you to do this. We create these results. We're responsible for that. But with low self-esteem, they, they say things like, what we'd really like to try to do. <laughs> and, you know, if we can, and there, there are no testimonials or the testimonials are weak, and the focus is on methodology. 
See, when consultants don't feel good about themselves, they focus on how they do things, not what they create. And that's a fundamental flaw. So this, this, no, this notion that you better believe it yourself. See, you know, enthusiasm is contagious. Yep. Lack, of, lack of enthusiasm is contagious. And the way you present yourself to someone is how they're going to start to understand you. That makes sense. Absolutely. So, Alan, can you tell us what are the, if, if you could give us three ideas, the three most important things that you'd recommend consultants should do when they're marketing themselves? Hmm. Well, let's see. The first I would recommend is that uh, you're crystal clear, crystal clear on how you improve the client's condition. Uh, you know exactly why a client is better off once you walk away. Uh, that is, they can close sales faster with less cost of acquisition, or they implement new strategies that take them into new markets, or they improve the performance of their people and their systems. I mean, I don't care what it is, but you have to be absolutely crystal clear on after you walk away how the client's improved. The second thing you have to be absolutely clear on is who is your buyer. Your buyer is never a company. It's never an entity. Your buyer is always a person. And so when I dealt with Hewlett Packard and GE and IBM and all these great firms, I was always dealing with people. And so you have to know who the buyer is, who can write a check for your value. And the third thing is, if you know your value and you know who buys it, then you have to devise ways for them to reach you and you to reach them. Uh, if you know what they read, you know where to publish. If you know where they hang out, you know where to network. If you know what they attend, you know where to speak, and so forth and so on. So you have to create um, causeways, uh, bridges, links, avenues, where they can come to you and you can come to them. And I would say for any consultant, whether they're brand new to the business or they're looking for a second career or they're veterans just trying to improve and get to the, the, um, the metaphorical next level, what's your real value? Who buys it? How do you reach them? Great. Okay, thank you. So, Alan, you've been very generous with your time, which I really appreciate, and I know having worked with you for a number of years that you are very generous with your time and with your insights and thoughts. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to share with us? Well, I would say that um, people need to listen to the kind of advice you're giving them. I mean, you provide them with these opportunities, and the fact is that consulting uh, is really a very sharing profession. People do tend to share, but the amazing thing is not enough people uh, take advantage of it. And so... It, it's time to start looking uh, very hard at your practice and how you do things better. I mean, my most successful programs are things like moving from six figures to seven, moving from zero to 300,000, know, the million-dollar consulting college. And the reason is those people who partake of that really realize they need help to break through a paradigm. And what you said earlier is correct. That the big difference is, is, is in your head. Great. That's wonderful something to remember. We've been chatting today with million-dollar consultant Alan Weiss. As we mentioned, Alan has a wealth of free information on his website, which is www.summitconsulting.com, and that has just recently been redesigned. So if you haven't been to Alan's website lately, go check it out. He also mentioned his blog, which is www.contrarianconsulting.com. Definitely worth subscribing to. Lots of good insights there. So, Alan, I want to thank you again. We really appreciate your time and your insights. It's been a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks, and thanks for putting so much thought into the questions. I had a really good time. Great. Thank you. This is your host, Linda Popke. Thank you for listening. We'll see you again soon for the next episode of Marketing Thought Leadership. We hope you enjoyed this edition of Marketing Thought Leadership, brought to you by L2M Associates. If you'd like to find out how you can improve the return on your investment in marketing programs, processes, or people, contact us at www.l2massociates.com.